Hello, welcome to Film Trace. Film Trace is a podcast where we trace the life of a film uh, from conception to production all the way to release and reception. We always pick a new movie every week that has come out to trace its life. What do we have this week, Chris? Well, yeah, I think I uh, kind of am responsible for this uh, claptrap that we're going to get into today. Uh, we were struggling to look for like a, a major release this past weekend because essentially, uh, of course, with the movie theater shut down and uh, no really big movies coming to streaming, uh, probably the biggest one was Joseph Gordon-Levitt in 7500, a very low-budget uh, terrorist airplane movie from Amazon Prime Video. Uh, so we decided to take a look at uh, a movie that is new to Netflix this week, but actually was released theatrically, though perhaps you might have forgotten it. I sure did. Uh, I actually don't know if I even was aware of it when it did come out back in 2016. It's called The Darkness by writer-director Greg McLean from Blumhouse Productions, starring Kevin Bacon and Rada Mitchell. What the hell happened with this movie, Dan? Um, well, I think that, like, I never... I, I'm a big horror fan. So are you. I had no idea this came out. And, like, keep in mind, in 2016, I was living like a monk in Nashville... Uh, and all I was doing was watching movies. And the fact that I didn't know that this came out is a pretty big deal, which basically means there was not a huge push here uh, for The Darkness as a wide release. It almost seems like and we'll get into the sort of the Blumhouse production model, but it was surprising because it does feel like they kind of dumped it a little bit. Uh, and for Absolutely. a film like this, you know, with Kevin Bacon, uh, with George McLean uh, sort of doing the uh, um, direction and writing here, who you probably know from Wolf Creek. Did you see Wolf Creek? I did. I yeah. actually, for some reason, saw it in the theater. So did uh, I. Did I see it with you? I don't Probably think, I not. feel like I went by myself. <laughs> I think I went by myself, too, actually. Because nobody would see that shit with me. <laughs> That's sort of his claim to fame, though, right? So he, he yeah. does this small sort of slasher outback movie in 2005, um, you know, shot for, what, $1.4 million, uh, ends up making $62 million worldwide, which falls mm-hmm. right in line with the Blumhouse production model. You know, spend under five million bucks and then go out and make a hundred million dollars. You know, the most famous example that they have is the, probably the Paranormal Activity series, uh, right. and so it seemed like a really sort of a match made in heaven here. Uh, and Jason Blum, the founder and sort of de facto leader of Blumhouse Productions, actually reached out to uh, to Greg and said, "Hey, do you want to do a movie? I have a movie for you." Uh, but then Greg came back with his own script. And I guess Jason liked it enough where he thought it was sort of or unique enough to say, hey, let's actually do your script. Yeah. And one of the things, too, that I remember from an old interview with Jason Blum was that one of their sort of criteria for selecting a film is that it has to be super, super different. Like he was like adamant about that in this interview. It has to be a unique take. He doesn't care what it is. He'll read any script from anybody, but it just has to be a unique take. Do you think that, you know, after seeing the movie, seeing the reception and stuff like that, looking back at the script, if you saw that, would you say that that's a super unique property or no? Hell no. Like, there's this is the definition of like Z grade schlock, and it's just spiffied up for a Blumhouse production, which knows to like pay attention to the quality of the craft. But usually also, like you said, is very well known for making it not only 
you know, have a gloss to it, but also have some kind of substance to it. The only like kernel of interesting, uh, I don't know. It's not even subtext. There's no subtext in this movie. It's just text. Uh, the <laughs> o- the only there's an thing... attempt at subtext. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, the only thing that I think they were yearning for, but did not get on any kind of level, was to coalesce the. Uh, haunt. It's a ghost story. It's a haunted house story. Yeah. Um. To to coalesce that trope, which is you know, just beyond a trope now. It's 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 such an obvious staple that you have to be doing something very special with that concept to make it uh, watchable, much less actually good. Um. And the only thing in there is that you know there's some attempt at trying to have a parallel between the hauntings. And the completely absurdly overstuffed uh, personal family drama that's going on, right? And I think that they're they're trying to do something there. Like I could definitely see. I'm trying to think of a horror movie that does that. I, I was watching it with some friends this week and over Zoom, yeah. and uh, I, I I did like uh, I got a friend who mentioned that it seemed like uh, perhaps this guy Greg McLean wrote this in a like a couple weeks after he saw the Babadook which came out a couple years prior <laughs> and basically was like I want to do the Babadook but make it with like more guys and stuff <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, it, it's an interesting sort of yeah if you look at the script you know and we have you know when he talks about writing the script right he talks about oh you heard a story about a real haunting I mean the basic <laughs> plot line is they go out into the desert they find some artifacts one of the kids they bring them back and their house is haunted and that's it essentially for the plot that's mm-hmm. what happens mm-hmm. and so it seems like he was inspired by maybe a story he heard from a family friend uh, about someone who was an actual haunting quote unquote actual uh, and then also there's this crazy quote that we have on here about him being interested in Native Americans uh, and it just sort of it's definitely what we would call problematic uh, <laughs> and so I guess he was trying to fuse all these different interests one would be hauntings two would be sort of um, relics he talks about a little bit and how they work mm-hmm. and how they carry history within them and then also sort of just Native Americans in general and their culture he finds very fascinating and they kind of kind of stuffed it all into a script and um, I don't know. It just doesn't. I mean, right from the start, if I read this, I would be like, well, this is, you know, this is complete, a complete waste of time. And it's interesting, too, that his other movies, he has not written for the most part. Like this is one of the right. few that he's actually written. So I think that there's already a kind of a disconnect here. Uh, and as we get into the more production side of things, um, we'll kind of see it's an interesting film in the sense that. All of the Blumhouse sort of filters that are set up to make micro-budget films, this one seemed to sort of skirt past somehow. Like, right. you even think about the script, it's not that interesting, it's not that unique. Uh, it's basically a rip-off of Poltergeist, The Conjuring specifically he calls out as a movie yeah. that he loves. And I think The Conjuring would be, I would say personally, one of the better haunted house movies of the last 20 years. I don't think you like it, right, Chris? You're not into it. No, no, I've, I've fallen asleep to it on several occasions. <laughs> and then, I, you know, I pick up like also like Amityville Horror, the original, mm-hmm. and of course the mm-hmm. remake. It's all in there, um, but it's it feels kind of like a, a really bland gumbo of different genres and horror films. Yeah. Uh, and you can tell that from the story right from the start. 
Um, and there's there's also like three or four after school specials happening oh in there God. too about <laughs> raising an autistic child, having a bulimic daughter, and it's just uh, an alcoholic mother and a philandering father. Like it's it's such yeah. Like I think uh, the gumbo is it, it's right on. They are I, literally putting it all into a vat and then having them walk through a portal at the end. <laughs> what, a, a quick question before we jump more into the production side of this movie. Right. Do you think if each one of those characters did not have those um, sort of fatal flaws that are glaringly and shoved in your face constantly, do you think the film would have been better? Because Conjuring didn't really have that. Like, it just didn't. It was just a straightforward genre haunted house right. movie. Would do you think that would help the script or is it, it was kind of doomed from the start? Uh, yeah, I think it was doomed from the start. I mean, I, the the core of the haunting itself like don't even consider the family drama factors and you have essentially it it founded on one of the most racist tropes of horror films uh history right like how many times have people had like it's it there seems to be such a lack of self-awareness here which of course makes it fun to watch from a bad movie perspective but it 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 definitely just feels awful Uh, i mean from a quick google search uh I on the uh, the term Anasazi, like the term itself is a derogatory uh, way of talking about um, outsider Native Americans in the Pueblo era. So it's like you, and I found that in like the fourth paragraph of the Wikipedia article, which w- which I checked was had you know hadn't been updated since 2012. So <laughs> of course, exactly right. Um, so I, it's rough. I, I do want to mention yeah. before we get into the production side that uh, it, it is interesting looking at um, the trajectory of this man's career from between Absolutely. Wolf Creek yeah. in 2005 and uh, The Darkness in 2016, because I do think it's a question of, I mean, Jason Blum, yes, he's a smart guy. He's clearly successful. He's figured out his formula. But uh, just like anybody, he's human and he's definitely made some mistakes. And I think that perhaps he had heard and i mean wolf creek makes made me ill to to watch to be honest yeah. um but but i get why some people yeah, i try to step step in the shoes of some of the more uh sick uh horror fans in the world <laughs> and i get why like it was it was effective at making me ill so like there's something there uh you know it was along the lines of uh you know the eli roth hostel fiasco of the mid 2000s oh, yeah, torture yeah, porn yeah. right um but it was enough to you know garner a sequel which while wasn't super popular in america was definitely popular in australia still um he made a, another movie with rada mitchell who plays the wife in the darkness um called rogue in 20, 2007 uh about a man-eating crocodile so he was going for like maybe z-grades sharknado stuff but still like you know lake placid like good enough to release wide and have maybe a, a kitschiness to it uh dimension put that out um and then he would he got the job uh when james gunn didn't want it to uh helm the belco experiment yeah which is a hilarious fiasco travesty of a movie um both in its execution and in the production because james gunn uh understandably you know he he kind of saw that script that he had written and especially a on the heels of the success of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which he directed, um, he was like, uh, yeah, no, I don't want to revisit that script. It's a horrible story about people that are forced to, like, kill each other off in an office. It's basically Battle Royale in, like, a generic American office building. And uh, this this is what... Uh, 
McLean did right before the darkness. So I think there were a combination of factors where Blum was saying, like, not just like basing it off the script, which is, I think, objectively terrible. Uh, maybe if you got him in a room with some alcohol, he would even Blum himself <laughs> would admit that. Uh, but I think he's probably he, he was like right at the pinpoint of this trajectory. The Belko experiment had just gotten filmed, but it hadn't been released. So there wasn't the fiasco yet. And there was a lot of buzz about it when it was in production. And so I think Blum thought that McLean was a get. And yeah. he was like, OK, oh, yeah. see what you can do. Uh, and it just was pretty unfortunate that what he had to do was not much. And that's kind of that's a good lead into the production of this film, because, you know, I think the model that Jason Blum has set up and sort of to give you the, the quick story on that Blumhouse Productions has been around for a while, but they really sort of uh, showed up on the map in 2009 with Paranormal Activity and mm-hmm. sort of their model. And one of the major reasons why we picked this movie uh, was to sort of talk about the Blumhouse production model, which is doing, I guess you would call them micro-budget films, but it's films that are 3 to $5 million. They find a good uh, director, either brand new, they think has a lot of raw talent, or like uh, Greg here thinking, you know, he's already done some stuff in horror. We kind of trust him with a 4 or $5 million budget. Let's just let him run with it. Uh, and so this was shot for $4 million, originally entitled Six Miranda Drive, which I think is fascinating because it sounds like they really were indebted or committed to the family angle and the family drama part of this and I think that's one of the reasons why it ends up being super muddled at the end of the day shot Mm -hmm. mostly in Los Angeles uh, but in terms of the Blumhouse model I think that's what we really want to focus on here how do they make that work and so Jason Blum has essentially set up uh, I wouldn't call it a hit factory because like what how many of these are hits Less than 50%, I would say. I once went through this for the Wildline podcast and like looked at all of them. And it's not as many as you think. Essentially, what they do is they pump out movies for these low budgets with the assumption that it's not going to go wide release. So a lot of people within the industry who have heard of Blumhouse or if you ever heard of Jason Blum, you think, oh, he's just making low budget movies as kind of a gamble. They're actually not gambles. At the end right. of the day, that three to five million dollar budget is set in stone because he knows he can still recoup his cost if it doesn't hit wide release. Um, And so how do they do that? How do they make a movie like this for five million bucks? They have a highly regimented sort of production schedule. Uh, They don't shoot six days. They don't do overnights. Uh, They have a a huge set of rules that they follow to make sure that it's efficient and the final product looks good. And one thing I would say about the Blumhouse movies is that despite the fact that a lot of them have um, lower budgets, they never really look that way. Like, I would say that this movie doesn't look like it was shot for $4 million. I would have guessed 10 to $15 million. Um, so they definitely have a sort of sheen to them overall. And, you know, a sort of additional way that they uh, sort of front, row, uh, front load the work for a film like this is they do a lot more storyboarding and sometimes 3D animation to actually see how the script looks on screen uh, or in sort of a, a visual narrative before they even get to shooting. So they're not the type of uh, movie that's going to shoot for two or three months. It's going to be a one month shoot, get in, get out to keep those costs mm-hmm. super low. Um, and what I found interesting, too, is that so up until the thing is shot, there's the hope that it's going to be a wide release film, but not the expectation, which I think is very important because uh, right. they're still going to be able to sort of break even if it doesn't go to wide release exhibition. They can sell it to VOD, uh, iTunes, stuff like that and still make some cash. They do an internal audit of the film without the finance people being involved and kind of talk with the director and come to a consensus and basically say thumbs up, thumbs down. 
right? Is this wide release material or is it not? And Jason says that most of the time the director agrees with them. I kind of wonder what happened here, you know, because if I, I believe that Kevin Bacon being involved pushed this probably to a wide release. Do you think that that's yeah. like, do you think that makes sense? Definitely. I mean, especially you compare it to McLean's previous releases. They're, 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 it's full of nobodies. Rada Mitchell is the biggest name and she's not even a big name at all. So it, it definitely makes sense that it was a it was a confluence of factors. The the buzz on McLean's career overall, Kevin getting Kevin Bacon involved. And one other factor that I think is pretty important is uh, the cinematographer. I don't know if you looked this up. Uh, Dan, but uh, the cinematographer for this movie, they grabbed uh, Toby Oliver. And Toby Oliver is an interesting guy. There's actually a big meme going on on film Twitter right now. I don't know if you saw it about about uh, how versatile some the cinematographers are and how kind of ridiculous it can be that uh, you'd think that a cinematographer has a certain style, and uh, but they sometimes do complete trash and then do some of the best movies ever made, right? Yeah. Uh, so this guy, Toby Oliver, um, had a link to Greg McLean because he uh, shot Wolf Creek 2 with him um, in 2013 and then also after the darkness despite its huge fall he went on to shoot many other Blumhouse movies including both Happy Death Days and Get Out so here is a guy that you know knows how to take that sheen, that Blumhouse sheen yeah. and slap it on complete trash and like you said, you can't really notice it. There are other tells in the movie. Yeah. Uh, one thing that 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 my friends and I noticed over Zoom as we were watching together is just like, uh, I mean, for a haunted house movie, you 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 have to care about the house. But the production <laughs> design department in oh. this film had no cares to give at all because they have like there ends up being like a, a set piece in the movie about this table of random vases from like various department stores. <laughs> we called that out too when we were watching it. We're like, well, <laughs> why the is that is there? <laughs> Check off space. <laughs> I know. And like, just like blank walls. Uh, the They tried to, I think they're trying to do a, like a cute Australian joke by having the teenage daughter's bedroom have a crowded house poster in it. Um, but <laughs> that it. is completely distracting. The autistic kid has a, a pie, the number poster in his room. I thought that was for it's the just, movie at first. I was like, is that a pie movie poster? <laughs> <laughs> He's a big Aronofsky fan. Yeah, of course. Aren't we all? <laughs> You're right. Um, yeah. So there's like, it's interesting because like it, they were, they're trying, like you said, it's Kevin Bacon and Toby Oliver and the just the name of Greg McLean. I don't actually think the guy's that talented. No. He just had the buzz and the confluence of factors. Bam, you make it look good enough to to squeak out a wide release. And they did. Right? Even if it's a forgotten movie and it got thrown on Netflix and we're probably the only people talking about it <laughs> this week. Even though I did notice it was number four in no, movies. Of, oh, it was number six yesterday. It was number four today. Okay. Number four on Friday anyways. Oh, my God. Well, that's just Netflix pushing things. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think Netflix is the point where they can get anything in the top 10 if they wanted to. Right. I mean, right, that's kind of right. where they're at. I do. I, I do find it interesting, though, just that Blumhouse factory model that they have, which yes. does tend to work sometimes. Not yeah. all the time, but they, they put up like Gallows, terrible movie. That's like a miss. But Get Out. Get Out's one of the most important films of the last decade. Easily. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Same exact model. I think that was only shot for like just under five million. Same budget as this. Um, but just a completely different performance. Uh, I can't, what did it make? That made like $300 million worldwide or something. I yeah, mean, just nuts. a completely different story. I find it fascinating that, you know, I, because Kevin Bacon 
was involved and you had uh, you know a big cinematographer involved it, it kind of felt like the model failed a bit because i think under normal circumstances they would have been like yeah this is okay i think they would have just pushed it to vod uh, and so right. they kind of backed themselves into a corner and sort of broke their own rules because they explicitly say when they start production on anything uh, the, to the director, we do not guarantee you a release at all. Yeah. Like you got to yeah. perform like you really got to show up and perform. That's why they're very different than other studios. Uh, the guys, they really do have it down to a science. Um, and I think here it, it just slipped through and we got this really kind of mess of a film. And maybe this is a good time to start talking about the reaction to this film at when it came out. <laughs> Oh, yeah. that's, um, which that's is the not fun, good. that's the most fun part which is not good um, <laughs> no. I'll start with the box office and sort of give us some context on performance um, you know it opened up at 4.9 million uh, May 13th 2016 which is also kind of a tough time slot if you think about it mm-hmm. right in the middle mm-hmm. of the start of the movie uh, summer movie season um, you know a lot of competition uh, looks like Captain Civil War was out at the same time Jungle Book uh, Money. I like to put Money Monster on here <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> it did not open very well uh, it closed out at 10.8 million worldwide. Uh, it was supposed to, I believe, it was supposed to have a much bigger international release, but I only really saw it released in the UK. I don't know if you saw it released. Yeah. Was it in Australia or anything? I didn't really see anything else. So it I might didn't. have. I, I, what might have happened is US, UK test market, see how it does. If it's not doing well, we're pulling the release to other countries, which is I, my guess is probably what happened. Um, mm. how did, what did critics think about this film, Chris? Oh my gosh! These are some of the, uh, the, the most enjoyable critic reviews of bad horror movies, and there's a lot of really good critic reviews of bad horror movies. Um, but my favorite uh, pull quote is probably from Peter Sabinski from RogerEbert.com. He says, "Most bad horror movies offer viewers long stretches of screen time where nothing much happens, which are then occasionally punctuated by brief moments of bloody mayhem deployed to keep viewer, viewers vaguely interested." On the other hand, The Darkness is a horror film made up of long stretches of time in which nothing much of anything happens is only occasionally punctuated by brief bursts of pure, concentrated boredom. There are times when it feels as if the producers challenged themselves to see how little it needed to still meet the legal definition of a movie. I mean, that's wow. just brutal. I mean... savage. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the critics, it was, what, 3% on Rotten Tomatoes? Oh, yeah. It's it's officially the worst-reviewed Blumhouse movie to date. And as you said, like, they have a lot of stinkers in there. They have a lot of bad movies. 27 on Metacritic, and that's very, mm-hmm. very low. Um, and so, I think, from a critic's perspective, a total disaster, which, you know, isn't that surprising. Horror movies in general... Uh, critics take a lot more critical view of them. Uh, but the audiences also hated it, right? Like, you had 1.7 yep. on Letterboxd, um, a C cinema score, uh, 19% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. That's before they did verify audience, so it might be brigaded, but I doubt it. <laughs> no one's going to take the time to brigade the darkness uh, audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And a 4.4 out of 10 on IMDb, uh, which I like to throw out there just because to see from different perspective. Um, and so I think, yeah, and I think especially like the Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb scores, like we should understand that like it's rare that a movie drops below like 30 on a Rotten Tomatoes audience and it rarely exactly. movie drops below five on IMDb. So that's really, really bad. Like the, the, your average people that are just watching something to get a couple jump scares in, they probably would have given the none a five at least. Oh, uh, no, so bad. They, they're still note, noting how terrible this this film is. Um, but yeah, so then uh, here's my question for you, Dan. Yeah. Because uh, I know you're you're more you're more of a numbers guy than I am. Yeah. Uh, and 
we, when you look at its release, uh, one of the things that I noticed is that uh, Blumhouse ha- set, put out a statement that um, as long as The Darkness puts out um, you know, a, between a four and five million dollar opening, and it did what it got four point nine, yeah, right. Even mm-hmm. though it was the worst new release of the week, yeah. uh, then it was still considered a success. How is that possible? I, I think that's probably BS. Um, okay, <laughs> my guess is that it's you know you got people who got to save face. So like Kevin Bacon, especially, I'm sure his press people and his agents are like, you gotta say this is like a break even or something like that. I don't see how that was possible. And here's the reason why. Like, if your budget is five million bucks, that's all great. But the entire model of Blumhouse is that sort of thumbs up, thumbs down, wide release. And they do that because the marketing budget's gonna be at least triple that. So you're talking, I would say, bare minimum to release this domestically, $20 million. Uh, And if you look at just looking at the basic numbers, worldwide box office, if I give them the benefit of the doubt, they get 50 percent of that back. So by the time this thing got out of theaters, they had five million dollars in the bank on a 20 million dollar spend. So, you know, I don't really know the the, the thing with variety and deadline, all that sort of stuff. They do have great sourcing, but you always have to be super skeptical about who is letting out these secrets, because it's usually someone at the studio or a press agent. And they always call it an insider, but they try and it's essentially the spin room on those publications to try and make it look like it's okay. And I'm sure the goal here is to make Kevin Bacon look okay. Like he wasn't in this huge flop that was a complete disaster, which it was. Um, And I think just across the board, I mean, if you try and, you know, oftentimes I want to view these films from two different perspectives. Like, is it a financial success and is it a sort of cultural success? Um, And I think in both of these sort of arenas, it's a complete another failure. I mean, financially, it must have lost money. I have no doubt that this film lost money. Uh, and I think culturally, it, it's it's meaningless to general mass audiences. But even more important, it's meaningless to horror audiences. And if like I went on the the horror subreddit, which I love, uh, <laughs> and just to see what horror fans thought about it, because I'll give you kind of a counter example. Like Belko Experiment released. Was it released the same year as this? I think it was 2016, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Among horror fans, like general audiences probably watched that and gave it, I think they gave it like a 50% Rotten Tomatoes. And right. so they weren't into it. It was, you know, whatever. But horror fans tend to like that movie because it's doing something different, something almost kind of arty within the genre. Now, is it schlocky? Of course, but it's horror. You have that sort of openness and freedom to do whatever you want in that genre. And they tend to like that movie. Um, but they absolutely despise this film. Because it's just, at the end of the day, it's a middling, boring attempt um, to make a haunted house movie mixed with a family drama. You know, it's a lame attempt to do Poltergeist again, essentially, with some stupid sort of, um, like you said, pretty racist Native American mythology thrown in there. Uh, I always say horror fans are easy to please, but tough to tough to fool. And they weren't fooled by this. And so I think that's why this was really kind of across the board failure. Uh, Would you agree with that? Yeah. And uh, one quick note about like uh, Kevin Bacon in particular. It's interesting because he seems like a guy. I mean, we should note that he has been known to do everything right that's the reason that there's the six degrees of kevin bacon saying out there right Mm -hmm. um but it's interesting to me because uh you can look at 
uh, David Coop as uh, a key figure in Kevin Bacon's career trajectory because basically he didn't do much of he obviously is famous for his uh, short uh, appearance in the first Friday the 13th right and then yeah. he got away largely from the horror genre unless you count like Tremors which was arguably more you know adventure fantasy right yeah. uh, and then it wasn't really until Stir of Echoes in 1999 that got him back into it because of David Coop uh, his his uh, ghost, you know, kind of weird possession style movie um, ha- had a budget of 12 million and made over 30 worldwide, which is not a huge hit, but it's enough that um, it, it, it kind of was seen as uh, a moderate success in its time. That led to the horrible Hollow Man, oh, uh, Invisible Man movie. <laughs> and then uh, he then that was once again kind of his uh, backing away from the horror genre. And then he came back to it pretty hardcore in the mid 20. In the early 2010s, when he starred on The Following, uh, Kevin Williamson's uh, horrible TV show. And then he also was in The Darkness. And now what's interesting is the only other movie he's been in since The Darkness is Patriot's Day, in which he played a supporting role, the Mark Wahlberg Boston Massacres uh, bombing uh, movie. And then this weekend, also, he had a horror movie released called You Should Have Left, which is also getting completely destroyed by critics. And guess who directed You Should Have Left? David Coop. So I think, ah, Kevin, you need to just stay away from David. And <laughs> he like he's he has a rich career, yeah. both on TV and movies. And yet I, I say that it's his it's his own damn fault. If he had never put his name on it, maybe we would never be talking about this movie. The yeah. darkness or the new one. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, do you think looking back at this, you know, from conception to production all the way to release, do you feel like there was any chance to write the ship? For the darkness, heck no! They it should have been like McLean wanted to try his hand writing a haunted house story. They tr- maybe try to workshop it and revise it, and then they realize you know there's nothing here. Let's try something else, Greg. Um, but yeah. uh, I know. totally agree with that. I think this thing, you know, I love doing postmortems on films, and this is like a clear example of something that was never going to be good. And I think the initial air was that moment when Blum was like. Uh, oh, you have a script? Let's look at that. And thought that, like, oh, let's keep going with that. Because Blum already had a script for him to shoot. A whole completely different movie. And right. McLean basically made him change his mind with his script. And so I, I think that was probably the, the fatal flaw moment here uh, for this film. Um, that's it I'm, for uh, episode two of Film Trace, uh, The Darkness. What are we doing next week, Chris? Yeah, we are going to uh, uh, keep going with the Netflix train. So I guess we are now a, a, a Netflix podcast. But uh, <laughs> there is an interesting, uh, probably, I don't know, I'm not going to make any judgments yet. But next week, Netflix is releasing their original film, uh, Eurovision. Um, sorry, what is this full title? Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, which is a parody, kind of, I guess, starring <laughs> I, Will Ferrell. I guess. Um, from the creators of uh, Step Brothers and uh, the campaign and the huge flop of last year, Holmes and Watson. Ugh. So it will be very interesting to see how this thing turns out. We'll do a postmortem on it and trace its life from conception to production to release and execution. Thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace. Film Trace.